Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a founder joining us and it's obviously a German founder doing great things in Europe. So I guess without further ado, Felix Reinschagen, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Angel. It's my pleasure. So born and raised close to Hamburg. So how was life growing up? <laughs> Actually, very cozy and nice. Um, I come from uh, a family um, with a lot of entrepreneurs and um, uh, kind of people with a lot of technical background. So um, actually, I always had the idea of um, founding something later in my life, even if it was very unspecific. My dad is a civil engineer, and I, it was pretty sh clear for me that I don't want to build houses. Um, so when I started to look into software with kind of age 13, 14, um, I thought that could be an interesting thing for me, but it should actually take many, many years before I came back to that calling. So, so then in, in this case, I mean, you were mentioning about your family. So, uh, you know, many of the founders that I speak with, they have this influence from seeing their parents or from seeing their cousins. So what did you see that really got you like, you know, one day it's going to be me? Um, first, my, par my, my dad um, did build his own business, um, even though it was kind of a smaller scale. But it was really, he was building his dream, so to say, and following his own vision. Um, at a time when what he did was actually not en vogue or, you know, what people thought, you know, would be kind of, um, would be a good business, but it was actually his, um, his personal dream. And he thought there would be a lot of value in doing that. And it turned out much later in his life that it was actually a great place to be. And, and, um, on a small local space, so to say, what he built had really a transformative impact. And, um, I as well admired a lot, um, you know, how much it meant to him and how happy he was in, in, in doing so, even though in the early years, you know, he easily could have made a lot more money somewhere else. It was really inspirational in terms of he followed his dream. Um, and much, much later in his life, um, he as well profited a lot from that. And I still see the legacy and it's amazing. You know, if I just walk the, the streets of my hometown, seeing, you know, the, the houses, um, he built and, um, how whole neighborhoods actually have been influenced by, by his work over all the years. And in your case, I mean, obviously you ended up going and studied computer science and economics. I mean, that's quite an interesting combination. So, so why did you combine those? Um, first, I was 
a very quick learner in school. I really loved going to school. Um, and um, I, I was very good um, in school as well, perhaps, you know, because I was curious. Um, and, and I felt a little bit at the end of high school, I was not really pushed to my limits. And um, it was clear to me that I wanted to do computer science, um, but I never wanted to work as a coder. So it seemed to be a natural thing to not give up on computer science, but as well, you know, pick a second thing. And, and, and I was going through many things there and, and looking at physics, but then it would have been a really technical career. And I wanted to keep my options really open because bluntly with age 18, 19, I had no real plan, you know, what I really wanted to do and which field would be good for me. So combining computer science and economics seemed to open a lot of options for me. And um, yeah, so then, uh, you know, I looked at universities where I could really do a full at that time, we still had a diploma in Germany, which is a combination of bachelor and master, where I could approach a full diploma with two majors at the same time. And there were just very few cities that would both allow that um, and have a nice campus where you could actually easily study both of these things um, um, along at the same time. And, and I ended up in the tiny town of Passau in southern Germany, which really came as a surprise to me and my parents and my friends. <laughs> That turned out to be a really good starting point because we're a really tiny place and um, um, uh, made good friends there. And, and as well, there was not that much distraction compared to, you know, had I been going to, to Munich or, you know, perhaps um, a big city like Berlin in the beginning. So then after university, why did you decide to go and, and do consulting? I think it's the same repeating thing, you know, um, consulting seemed to offer a lot of options. And I thought if I join a big consulting company, um, I see many different companies and industries, and I could form a much, much more um, informed opinion on where I would like actually to play. And I never thought about staying long. Like, you know, many young people who join big consulting company think, oh, I'm going to do this for, you know, a few years, going to see the world, um, in different industries. And then, of course, I'm, you know, going to find my profession in one of these places. And then on top of that, McKinsey had this all, um, awesome program um, back uh, in the days that you could work for two years in Germany, and then they would actually fund your PhD or um, um, an MBA. And I think it was a combination of these two things that, that I found attractive and consulting um, back in the days. And it, it, it's interesting here, you know, what you say and, and what you ended up doing, because it seemed that you really had that drive for business and for economics. So... So why a PhD over, let's say, an MBA? <laughs> because um, I think it was a stupid idea, but I thought I, um, you know, I have a master degree in economics. So why doing another master in economics, so to say? And I had yeah. really, really good experience in um, in the last years of my of my master degree, so to say, with doing um, academic research. And um, we published the first paper together with a um, uh, with a postdoc. And, and I really liked that. And I thought, hmm, perhaps um, even an academic career is interesting for me. Um, and, and that's why I went for the PhD. I very quickly learned during doing my PhD that an academic career is definitely not the right thing for me. Um, <laughs> so um, I, there was this thing I really had to push through because I liked it a lot less than I thought. Um, but usually if I, I start something, I really, really feel bad about giving up. Um, and, and it was actually one of the things where I thought more about giving up than almost any other thing in my life, um, because it became clear after six months and, um, finally it took me, um, a little bit more than two years to get my PhD. And 
making it through these um, one and a half years when you already knew you don't want an academic career. That was a tough thing to do. And then it was more perhaps the thing of pride um, than anything else uh, <laughs> to, re to really go through this. So obviously, when you when you finalize this and and you return back to to have your full devoted attention to to McKinsey, which was um, a big pillar in your in your professional career, where you spent like I mean close to a decade, you went to the U.S. and you went to Palo Alto. I'm sure that you had the exposure now to the hyper growth companies, to startups, going from nothing to something big. So I'm I'm pretty sure that that pushed you over the edge to to really think, hey. I'm, I'm getting closer to actually thinking about doing my own thing here. <laughs> Absolutely. And of course, um, I was looking at quite some things during that time, both um, during my time in New York, that was more financial industry. There were really interesting things going on as well at the interplay of tech and, and the financial uh, system there, um, um, automatic trading systems and, and, and interesting hedge funds. And there was something I was interested in, and but I really wanted to see the West Coast. Um, so... And perhaps as well, none of these opportunities seemed like perfectly right. Um, and, and then I spent um, um, close to a year in, in Palo Alto. And of course, there were kind of all these super cool companies out there. And um, it was very, very tempting either to join one of the more mature tech companies, you know, to, to use that as well as a starting point to get to know the ecosystem better. Um, and actually, I was really unhappy with myself. Um, McKinsey made me a really attractive offer to um, get back to Germany on a, on a partnership track. Um, and I thought when I was actually accepting that offer that I had failed a little bit on my ambition to, to, to start my own company because you feel like you're leaving Silicon Valley, you are, so to say, saying a little bit goodbye to that option um, of, um, you know, of finding your place in that ecosystem and start your own company. But one thing I was adamant about, I didn't want to go and join the, or do the, you know, 125th e-commerce vertical um, and now sell, I don't know, you know, um, cutlery over the internet or something, you know, because yeah. that was what I saw a lot and where McKinsey as well had exposure to. Um, and I really wanted to do something that is, unique and strong on from the technology side and, and i had this whole you know background in computer science and, and had spent many years earning my my pocket money in, in coding and i really wanted to do something as well perhaps coming back to the influence of um, um of my family you know that where i could pursue a dream you know something that would be much more forward looking compared to just executing on something that had been done many times before Um, and I've, unfortunately, I didn't come across something, but perhaps as well, luckily, during my time in Silicon Valley. It really took me coming back to Germany and reconnecting with, with, with some friends here that were doing some outstanding academic work where I felt, you know, that could be something that, that you know, I, I would be willing to really dedicate many years of my life to and, and many long nights and weekends and, and everything that, that I learned from, as well from my family, my dad is, is part of you know, starting something and, and pursuing your dream on, on something that, that at that time, no one else or very few people see as, um, as a promising topic. And obviously this ended up becoming Navis, no? which ended up being a, a spin-off of the Technical University there in Munich. But I, I'm wondering here, and because, I mean, I, I went through it as well. I mean, the, the comfortable corporate job, you know, nine to five, I was an attorney, 
making a good, decent amount of money uh, in New York City. I mean, in McKinsey also, you get paid very well. And here you were close to to being for 10 years there. So I'm sure that you had a really nice income. So so was it scary, really, to give your notice and go into something completely unknown? Yes, absolutely. And you learn a lot about yourself and, um, you know, your um, how much you really like to take a risk if you have to make that call. Because I was a junior partner at that point in time. Um, of course, you know, making the junior partner, you already have really, really nice income and a lot of additional perks. And um, uh, and I, I knew, you know, if you would be doing the thing, um, we would be starting with just the four of us founders and um, we wouldn't pay ourselves a salary, um, at least not in the first year. So um, there was a huge financial risk. Um, on the other hand, and there was, I think, you know, tipping me over was I would always be very unhappy with myself um, on not taking the opportunity because at the end, um, if you, you look back and you didn't have a really interesting career and you didn't really build your dreams, um, you know, then, you know, you, you, you have to look back to, to these moments, you know, where you really had the choice. And, um, if you did always go for the conservative riskless option, you must not at all be surprised, you know, if you end up having a boring career. And I saw as well many um, senior partners at McKinsey that were unhappy with their careers, even though they were making a lot of money. Um, and then finally, there came the point that I thought, okay, look, you know, the worst thing that can happen is that we're really unsuccessful and um, then I can still go back to consulting and I will have had an interesting learning opportunity. Yeah. And then it just made that leap of faith. Um, but it was harder than I had expected it to be, I have to say. So then, so then, tell us about. So here you are. You you connect with your with your friends there in in, and they were working on this interesting stuff. And then all of a sudden, you know, obviously you guys make the decision that this this may have legs as a business. How how did that spin off ended up happening, and how did you bring this to life? So we spent almost one and a half years. You know, on weekends, um, um, uh, on evenings, um, tossing around ideas, you know, how this technology could be put into or put to work in a business context. Because it was really very fundamental research. It was mainly about image recognition, scene recognition, um, and it was absolutely unclear where this could actually have a market. Um, and it was still clear that we would be some years away from really bringing something um, to the market that would be a really well-rounded product. Actually, in reality, it took us a lot longer even than we thought. Um, but we knew that. And I think one of the most important things was that we were really honest about this being a really, very likely, really tough roller coaster ride with a lot of um, kind of tough moments you know, for us ahead of ourselves. And we were never, um, you know, when we started this thinking, oh, this is going to be a super easy ride, you know, we have this amazing research, um, you know, now, um, you know, we just do a little bit of product development around it and this is going to fly. We knew it would be really, really long and hard way to um, coming up with a product. And we as well knew that the first product very likely would not be anything the customer would really like because we, we had such an academic background, so to say, it was so unclear where the technology could fit in. And, and any business book and any advice I got was telling us, 
whatever you're going to try first, very likely it's not immediately going to be a big hit. Very likely you will need to iterate a lot and learn and, and, and you know, zone in on a certain market. And, and I think that was one of the most helpful things because in all these kind of awful and awkward moments, and there were not, enough of that, we could, so to say, come back to that moment and tell ourselves, look, you know, that was exactly what we were expecting. So, you know, it, it, things are just going um, uh, along, along plan here. And um, or according to plan here, and um, and I think that helped me at least a lot through some of the darker hours that you definitely have um, on the way of building something with with such a strong um, tech focus and um, uh, such an unknown place in in the market and with the customer. So, so what ended up being the business model for the people that are listening to to get it? So, um, to just give you the very quick idea on where we started on, we thought. Look, outdoor, there is GPS and maps. Everyone uses Google Maps every day. Um, earlier, there was this TomTom thing or Garmin thing in the car. And we thought, wow, this you should have indoors because we spend 85% of our time in buildings. That's where most of our GDP is created. But if you enter a building, there is no map and there's no GPS. And the technology the team had built was the capability to use images to pinpoint your location, like you do as a human being. You know, you look around, you have memorized your environment, and then by matching your knowledge of your environment with what you see, you know where you are. Pretty simple. And that is what we wanted to rebuild. So our first idea was to have something like a Google Maps app, you know, for the indoors, where you would enter a university, a big campus, and you would enter uh, perhaps Algebra 2, and then you, you would show you which room Algebra 2 is, um, the Algebra 2 lecture is, and guide you turn by turn through the building um, to your lecture room. Turned out that this is, was, you know, um, kind of a great vision, and we are still somehow working against that vision. But what the main problem was that there was actually no map. So the positioning was actually not even the first problem to solve. The first problem was indoor mapping. And that unfortunately turned out to be a hardware problem because we looked at pretty much all available hardware and um, turned out it was all by far too slow, cumbersome, and expensive. So what we realized was we will need to be a hardware company um, or at least have a hardware arm. And that was perhaps one of the things that we absolutely underestimated. I absolutely underestimated because we were all software guys and we had no idea how hard and difficult it would be to, you know, develop and bring to market a hardware um, with, with um, you know, all the long development cycles and, and, um, um, and, and more difficult iteration um, at the customer that, of course, comes with, with building some hardware. And obviously, there was, um, you know, a really interesting foundation there that you guys did. But, but one of the things that, that also was interesting was that you were one of the first companies to really be involved in this deep tech so so tell us about essentially what is deep tech about and and how why was it so hard for you guys to really be one of the first ones so i think now everyone in the venture capital scene knows the term deep tech which means nothing less than that you are bringing or developing a technology or a product out of a really um fundamentally new and complicated um technology and it's a little bit like opposite to um, you know, developing a new e-commerce vertical, you know, where you just take a product that is not really distributed over the internet and then you build a web shop around it. Or um, perhaps uh, taking an existing piece of software and just, you know, developing it into a software as a service model. 
deep tap usually means that um, you know it's perhaps a robotics topic, um, something around um, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, or um, in our in our case, we started with 3D laser scanning and um, computer vision based scene recognition. And usually, um, or at that point in time, the German venture capital scene, um, of course, knew um, e-commerce um, models very well. And um, they had proliferated in Germany um, in um, the 2000, 2010er years. Um, and then when we hit the market, you know, of course, there were already really successful deep tech examples from the US. But in Germany, venture capitalists would really work around e-commerce metrics or, you know, social media metrics. And they didn't even understand, you know, how to measure us, you know, which KPIs to put up against an idea like Navis. So it was really tough for us um, to do the fundraising. Um, and, and we were as well surprised because in, 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 we all had lived and worked in, in Silicon Valley in the US and they were, of course, some of the coolest and most well-known iconic companies were deep tech companies. Um, even though there was a time in Silicon Valley as well where everyone wanted to do e-commerce and, 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 and social media stuff, um, but there was always constant fundraising around more um, fundamental technologies going on, but that was definitely not the case in Germany. So we really had to knock on many doors. We were as well thinking if it would be required for us to move the company over to the US to get funding. But finally, we could convince um, uh, some some venture capitalists in Germany as well. Um, and I think it has as well started, um, or we've been part of starting a much broader wave there. Um, and, and I think some of the uh, bloody noses that we got in the beginning have helped now um, new wave of um, of more technology-infused companies in Germany. And I think over the last years, there was many, many of them. Munich has become a center, but there are a couple of other cities um, where this has established itself as a new wave of, um, of startup companies in Germany. So there's a real ecosystem around robotics, around, um, around artificial intelligence, um, system automation um, that are striving um, uh, now in Germany. And um, it's as well good to now um, be a mentor and. Um, and, and see we some of uh, how some of the groundwork that we did um, uh, in that space is now um, is now helpful for the next generation of companies that that are being founded these days or have been founded over the last few years. And and in your case, you know, obviously an operation like this requires some financing. So how much capital have you guys raised today? Um, around forty million in equity and another twenty million um, from the European Investment Bank in a very special form of venture debt, which. Is almost somewhere in the middle between um, equity and, 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 and debt, I would say. So how, 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 for the folks that are listening really to, to understand this, I mean, how do you differentiate that equity from debt? I mean, how, how does that typically work? What's the difference? So equity at the end is very simple. You know, someone gives you money and gets a stake in the company. And then you have a lot of freedom, you know, to do with the money um, because you never have to pay it back, so to say, until... Either you do an IPO and you allow your shareholders to sell their shares or until a big um, corporate perhaps acquires you and then, um, you know, you, you can pay out your shareholders. That, of course, is a very different animal. You know, someone gives you the money but expects you to pay it back. And, and of course, then on debt, always the question is, you know, when do you need to pay it back and how much interest you need to pay? Um, <laughs> and of course, there are... Um, uh, they are very different models, um, and the European Investment Bank offers an interesting model where um, you know you you don't need to pay the money back for five years. They um, have a very very low interest uh, rate, but um, instead they take a small amount of equity. Um, so you know, 
against the timelines we're working against, this money very much feels like equity. Um, but of course, it um, you know leads to less dilution um, on the existing shareholders and the founders, uh, which of course is, is the beauty of the thing. Understood. So, so in your case, was it was it tough when you were thinking about you know the the overseas and, and other markets? I mean, for example, China. How tough was the entry into China? <laughs> Fun thing is, the entry was ridiculously easy. And uh, that led us to vastly underestimate the challenge. So uh, when we had the first more prototypey versions of our hardware ready, we called it the M3 um, because we had uh, two other models, uh, the Model 1 and the Model 2, that were so scrappy that um, that we, we didn't ever give it to a customer. So the Model 3, so to say, was the first one, the M3, that we felt we somehow could give a customer to experiment with. And then we did show it on some big trade shows. Germany is the, the country of trade shows. So we have some of the biggest in the world there. Um, there was always CBIT um, in Hannover, for example, where, you know, information technology across all different areas was on display, on show. And there we did actually as well um, show our technology. And, and there were a couple of Chinese people scouting for interesting new technology that, you know, spot on found us and were immediately willing to, to buy a device. And I was really like we were flabbergasted because like in Germany or in Europe in general, um, it, it still took months usually of negotiation and explaining until we could sell a device because it was not really ready at that point in time. And these guys were just coming and, and, and immediately writing us a check. So we thought, oh, wow, you know, China, is a, that's a cool market for us. And um, we had, of course, no idea how to sell it to China. So the most simple thing for us seemed to be hiring someone, um, you know, who would speak some Chinese. So we were looking at the University of Munich and, and we hired um, a colleague, um, you know, who, you know, was of, of Chinese origin and, and, and fluently spoke the language. And we were asking him, tasking him with, can't you just, you know, call a couple of similar looking Chinese companies and see if they would be interested in, um, uh, in buying some of our machines? And that was as well ridiculously successful. So he earned his his first year salary back, I think, in in two or three months. Um, so we thought, oh wow, you know, we are really up uh, for something big here. Um, and um, you know, we hired more Chinese speaking people. And then, unfortunately, we had to find out that there was a really strong kind of tech enthusiast and early adopter base in China, as well as you know, fueled by some um, state subsidies. And um, there was not really some lasting demand. And, um, and that, of course, was a conflict, you know, because we had already big dreams about, you know, how fast the Chinese market would be growing. And this could be kind of our, our first um, anchor market, perhaps even before, um, before we would be scaling in Europe. And we had to actually go all the way back and, and really understand the Chinese market and the customer. And we built a small um, subsidiary in, in Shanghai and, and, and hired local people. And so we had really go through a couple of flat years. Um, and, and only then could we really start to, um, to slowly kind of scale um, the Chinese market. Uh, but we were really, really mistaken by the strong initial willingness, you know, to try out new things and to buy even expensive machinery to to check it out and understand it. And we're really mistaking that for, um, for a kind of much broader systematic use of the technology, um, which I think only now is really starting um, to kick in when, when things are a lot more mature. 
That's amazing. So, so I guess uh, now, you know, just for, for everyone that is listening to get a sense on on how big Navis is today. I mean, any any numbers in terms of maybe like uh, amounts of employees or offices or anything that you can share? So we're around 200 heads, um, mainly located in Munich. We're still all R&D sets. Um, there's a rough indication, you know, half of the guys are engineers and, and really in product development. And by now the other half is really customer facing and um I don't like to call the function overhead, but, you know, of course we need strong recruiting. We need a finance team. We have a lot of international, um, kind of, um, uh, shipping and logistics to do. Um, and, um, we have two smaller offices, one in New York city, um, and one in Shanghai, but these are mainly focusing on, um, on, on sales and service in the local markets, doing some marketing. Um, very likely we'll have, um, an office at uh, the U S West coast. In the US, we had a very different experience than China. It was really, really difficult to sell the first one or two devices. Um, and um, in, in general, the market was much more skeptic uh, towards kind of the strange German laser scanning uh, technology that we were offering. But once we got rolling, we really saw some much more sustainable and constant growth. So, so China and US couldn't have been more different in the way they developed for us. Um, and, and today the U.S. market is clearly ahead um, in terms of size and maturity um, compared to the Chinese market. Um, yeah, but uh, had you asked me three years ago, I would have said exactly the opposite. That's incredible. So so one of the typical questions that I ask um, the guests that come on the show is, I mean, you've been at it now for quite a bit. So there's been a lot of lessons, a lot of good, bad, ugly, I mean, <laughs> you name it. So I guess if you had the opportunity to go back in time, and perhaps you're going back, you know, right before, you know, maybe like when you were like there in, in McKinsey, thinking about what's going to be next and what am I going to be building? If you had the opportunity to perhaps have a chat with your younger self and go back to 2013, you know, right before Navis was, was going to be launching, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business and why knowing what you know now? If I have to pick just one thing to say to my younger self, I would strongly advise towards hiring more experienced people earlier. At McKinsey, we always had the saying, talent eats experience for breakfast. And that might be absolutely true in consulting, but it's absolutely not true in a startup. Specifically not in a startup where you have to do things that you have absolutely no clue about. Um, and of course, you can try figuring out it all yourself. But you're so much faster if you just hire a few people who know how to do that stuff. Makes total sense. Very profound, Felix. And for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, connect to me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, please write something meaningful there. I get so many so stupid LinkedIn um, uh, contacts. We have absolutely no idea what these people actually want and why I should connect to them. But if you approach me, um, and you know, you want my uh, help on a specific business question or, you know, you're considering starting your own business or you're generally active in the field where we are active with Navis, I would be very happy to connect with you. And, um, and then that's usually very, the, the very easiest way um, to reach out. Amazing. Well, Felix, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help 
whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.